So we're looking at the perseverance of the saints, and uh, this is where we have come from. We've looked at all of these things, and we started to look at the last point there, that our salvation is secure. Uh, we looked at all the verses about salvation being conditional, and if you remember at the beginning of all of this, my, my uh, reconciliation or my understanding of how uh, our free will engages with God's sovereignty, it is that we truly have free will, and so we have all of the exhortations of Scripture, have faith, trust in Him, go forward, do what is right, reject what is wrong, and all of these exhortations come to us, and we have to choose to do what God wants us to do, and so those are very real choices that are present before us, but at the same time, we have the power of God that is present and at work in our lives, and I think, uh, well, I think that there's an error if you take one position over another position. I, I think that if you focus on, well, I can lose my salvation, I can choose today to be in, and I can choose tomorrow to be out, and then I can choose the next day to be back in, and I can choose the next day to be back out, that puts all of the, the burden upon us, and it makes our salvation just kind of rest on what I'm deciding to do and not to do. And I think that that is just a, a part of the truth. Um, it it uh, does not consider what God is doing in all of that. Where is He in my decision to be in or to be out? Where is He? Where is His grace? Where is His power? Where is His presence in all of that? And so we can't just put aside God's presence and say, well, my salvation rests upon me. So those are the things that we considered when we looked at the verses that talked about salvation being conditional. And now we're looking at the part or the side or the angle of it where God's power is present and at work in our lives. And if you remember, my reconciliation is that we have true and real free will, but that falls into or under the purview of the sovereignty of God. So God is able to do that. I don't know how he does it, but he is able to do that. Um, it is not the, the only paradox that we live with as Christians. And this is the question that I want to pose tonight when it comes to you know, understanding or considering paradoxes. And the question is this, could Jesus have sinned? Could Jesus have sinned? So how, much you, how might you respond to that? Because we do have a verse in the book of Hebrews that says, He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. All right, so we know he didn't sin. But he was tempted. So could he have sinned? So how would you respond to that? I'm asking. <laughs> All right, Tyson. Yeah, in Romans, right. Right. Okay, so you're saying there is a possibility that he could have sinned, and yet he was perfect in his life and he chose not to sin. All right, good. Anybody else? Sarah? Yeah. But? But he was fully God. Yes. All right, so there's the paradox. There's the paradox right there. So when we talk about Jesus, he wasn't 50 50. Half God, half man, right? We say when we talk about Jesus, he was 100% God, 100% divine, and 100% human. So if we're going to answer this, which isn't, isn't really an answer, but the best that we can do, we might say in his humanity, he might 
have sinned. The temptations were real. He was truly tempted in the garden, for example. So strong was the temptation that what happened? According to, I think it's Luke's gospel. He sweat drops of blood. And in Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us that in encouraging us not to sin, it says to us, you have not yet resisted temptation to the point of blood. Referring back to Jesus' temptation. So in his humanity, we have to say, well, yes, that was a very real temptation that he faced. But then we come to his divinity. Well, as God, there is no way, no possibility he would have sinned. He couldn't have sinned. He was God. He did not have the sin nature like like we do, he was, you know, the whole, the whole thing is just kind of different. So in his divinity, no way. But in his humanity, yes, possibility. Kevin? Okay. That's right. So, yeah, good. That's good. As a matter of fact, the book of uh, Revelation makes the distinction. So it says... From him who was and is and is to come, right? That speaks of the eternality of of God. But then when it describes Jesus, it says, He who was and died and is alive forevermore. And so it doesn't say him to him who was and is and is, you know, forever. It makes that distinction that, you know, he came and he died. So there's another paradox. And uh, like I said, Christianity has these paradoxes. Um, I was once asked in my college class, in my college class, um, I was asked, does, does God have to follow the laws of logic? Yeah, you know, the college kids, they were taking their logic classes and they were all excited about them and learning uh, the law of non-contradiction and I don't even know what all the laws are. So the question was, does God have to follow these laws of logic? And uh, I, I guess... The answer would be yes, but then if you look at Jesus, he's 100% man and 100% divine, and well, there goes that logic out the window. So, you know, there's, there's this challenge that we have in understanding how a lot of the elements of Christianity just kind of come together and fit together. And, and really, it just comes down to this. Folks, we are human and limited and finite and fallible in our understanding. And to compound it, we are impacted by sin. And sin just breaks things even further. But uh, God is not um, affected by any of those things. And so we mustn't, we mustn't presume to think that we can figure it all out. Um, we have to be content to live with some of these paradoxical truths that are before us. So we are encouraged to choose to live for Christ and those choices and the, the demand upon us to have faith is ever present and it is real as we go forward in life. And there's not one of us here that isn't struggling with something where we're challenged to trust in God and to choose Him and to yield to His Spirit as opposed to the flesh. And there's not one of us who isn't tempted to sin some kind of sin and we have to battle that and we have to fight that. And yet, at the same time, we are in God's hands. And He is at work as well. It's not just us. He is at work as well. So we are focusing on this next part, that salvation is secure. Now, the last time we talked, this was two weeks ago, 
we are focusing on, we're, we're going to have kind of a Trinitarian thing, and I'm spending the, the most time on this first one, that we are protected by God's power. So we looked at some of those verses where we are kept by him and guarded by him and so on and so forth. I want to continue that discussion tonight. And I want to talk about, we're still talking about God and his power and what he is doing, but I want to consider the idea of adoption. And and this is pretty amazing. So the first verse I want to look at is this. And it is a a pretty solid and forthright verse. It says, uh, referring to us, we have been predestined, he has predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, this is quite an incredible verse. And you've heard me share this illustration before, but, but here it goes. It's, uh, you know, your, your house is on fire, and, well, somebody's house is on fire, and you're walking by, and you see them inside, they don't know, so you go and you pound on the door, and you get their attention, and you tell them, your house is on fire, your house is on fire, come on out. Uh, or else you're going to be in trouble. Come on out. And they listen to you and they come on out and, and they thank you for saving them and you know, delivering them from the burning house. So we might liken salvation unto that. Uh, our sin condemns us to hell. Our house is on fire. But Jesus comes along and he dies for our sin and he says, come, come out, come to me and I will forgive you and you will be saved from your sins. And, and so we do. But that's only part of the picture of salvation because if... I want to do what God is doing. Not only do I go and I warn the people to get out of their burning house, but once they get out of their burning house, I say, well, you've got nowhere to go now. Come, come and live with me. But I go one step further. It's not just come and live with me now. It's come and be a part of my family permanently. I will adopt you. So if we, if we picture the Ukrainian crisis... And, and I think the biggest thing that has kind of impacted me or touched me about that is some of the people who have opened their homes and invited the Ukrainians to come and live with them. I, that, that's great. I think that's just great. So this is kind of where we're going. You know, they, you escape from the trouble. You're invited into the home. God takes it one step further. And he adopts us as his children. And there's a certain permanence to that. There's a certain permanence to being adopted by God into his family. Let's look at another verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 15. And, and this is an assurance that Paul gives to us as believers. It says, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So now we have entered into this personal, intimate relationship with God that has the, the, you know, the appearance of permanence, right? I, I mean, you don't just kind of, okay, today you can call me Abba Father, but tomorrow, you know, I'm not so sure. We'll just see how it goes tomorrow. That, that's not the impression that you get with this kind of situation or language. It is a permanent arrangement that God is doing on our behalf. We receive His Spirit, we are adopted, and now He is our Father. What a, what a great, what a great uh, uh, picture, what a great thing that God has done for us. He has made us a part of, our, of His family. He is our Father, we are His children, we have been adopted. And you heard me say last time 
that uh, having been adopted as part of his family and into his household, we receive an inheritance, and the New Testament does talk about the inheritance that is ours. It's awaiting for us, it's reserved for us, it's, uh, nothing can happen to it. So we have this idea of permanence, and here's where we do not want to diminish what God is doing in all of our striving against sin and striving in this world, and we have to do that. In all of that, though, there is this work of God where he has taken us as his own, and he holds us close to him. So we don't go in and out of his family, in, in today, out tomorrow, back in the next day, and so on, time and time again. It's not like that. That, that is not the idea that is conveyed in this kind of language when we talk about for uh, adoption. Uh, let's go to the next passage. This is Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 this time. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Notice, Jesus is the first among many, what? Brethren, brothers. You know, we're, again, we're talking, there's this family type of language that is used here. The firstborn among many brethren, moreover, whom he predestined them, he also called. Also, those whom, whom he called, those he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So there's this uh, family language um, that is used. But even more than that, we, we go the next step here. And, and this is where the salvation is uh, from beginning to end. Okay, so... We have this idea of God foreknowing us, foreknowing us. And it goes even, that precedes even his predestining us into you know, his image and so on. And so we're, we're talking about we were his from before the foundation of the world. So, so this is God at work in the ultimate sense. Those whom he has known, what is the end of it? So he predestines us. He calls us, he justifies us, and then the end is he glorifies us. Now, none of us, none of us have been glorified yet. None of us. The glorification of the saints is future. The only one who has been glorified so far is whom? Jesus is the only one who has been glorified so far. So we anticipate that. It is a hope that is placed before us. The fact that he has called us and chosen us and we belong to him means we can truly look forward to and anticipate and expect that we will engage or partake of the glorification of God. In other words, he will glorify us. So that is, that is great. That, that is like good news. That gives me hope that I can look forward and anticipate this, I, th- that I'm going to be glorified one day, just like Jesus is, and thus live forever. So that's, that's a pretty amazing thing. All right, so that's uh, uh, salvation, our security by God's power. I'm not going to spend so much time on the next ones, but uh, the next point here is we are saved through Jesus' work. And I'm going to look at, we're going to look at one verse, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. <clears throat> And uh, this time it's talking about Jesus and what he is doing for us. It says, therefore he, Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
And I have to admit, admit every time I read this verse, I, I am confused or perplexed, I should say, by where it says, he is able to save to the uttermost. Um, as if, you know, what, what's, the, what's the alternative? Are you going to save me partially? Or, you know, save my arm and forget the rest of me? Or save everything but my leg or whatever? I don't know, save to the uttermost. That's always just kind of a strange way to say this. But it, it is talking about the completion of the salvation. Now we know that salvation began at some point in the past for each one of us, right? We came to salvation when we did what? We accepted Jesus. We, let's flesh out the gospel a little more. We had faith in Him. We what? Admitted our sins. We confessed our sins, right? So we trusted in Jesus. We asked Him to forgive us. We had faith in Him and He saved us. Now that happened some point in the past. But salvation is not like a one point kind of thing. Salvation begins in the past and it is continuing on today. Now it's not like I'm getting saved again and tomorrow I'll get saved again and tomorrow I'll get saved again the next day and so on and so forth. It's that that salvation that began when I believed in Jesus, whenever that was for each of us. It started then and he has been at work since that day through to this day, and will continue to tomorrow until the day of glorification, right? So Jesus has been at work in my life. He is at work in my life right now, and he will be at work in my life tomorrow. Um, it, it's, it's really his part, his role. This is Jesus. His role in my life and in my salvation. He has, we might say in, in our terms, that Jesus has a vested interest in my life, right? He cares about me. He wants me to succeed. He wants me to walk in his ways. He helps me to do that. And one of the things that he does to help me is what? According to this verse. He intercedes for me. And if he is interceding for me, then yippee. That is, that is great news right there. He always lives to make intercession for us. So praise the Lord for that. He is able to save us to the uttermost, not just partially, but completely, as we come to Him, and He lives, He always lives to intercede for us. So that's good news uh, right there. And that is the work of Christ in my salvation. Now there's, there's uh, more there's the Holy Spirit in His role as well. And again, I'm just gonna, we're just going to look at one verse concerning this, but it encapsulates what the Spirit of God does for us. So we have Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14 here, and it says, In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So we have in this verse, we, we trust in him, when we, we trusted in him when we heard the gospel, and having trusted, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's, you know, this sealing, this preserving, um, this stamp of approval, if you will, that has been placed on us, and, and everything from here on out has to do with what's coming up. In other words, the future. He is the Holy Spirit of what? 
promise, the promise. There's a promise involved here. He is the guarantee of what? Our inheritance. Again, we're talking about the family language coming into play here, and in this case, with our inheritance. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now, there's another verse that says, you have been purchased by the blood, you are no longer your own. Therefore, glorify him. So, we are the purchased possession. The blood is the payment that was made to bring us to him. And then, of course, I love the last phrase here. It's just an exclamation of praise to God, to the praise of his glory, right? And, and it should excite this uh, praise within us. We should read this, and we should understand it, and we should be moved to just give him praise for what he has done in our life. It's an amazing thing that he has done. So that is the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. So that's uh, God's power, the work of Jesus, and the work of the Holy Spirit as well. All right, any questions? Any questions on this? Okay. I don't think I'm going to go forward. You guys, you guys want to get out a little early? <laughs> All right, if you have no questions, anybody have any questions? Going once, going twice? All right, maybe we'll do a little bit more, maybe five minutes more, all right? Sorry about that. I just got you all excited about leaving early, and then I'm not letting you go. What, what kid in the classroom would uh, go for that? Right, Britton? Bethany? All right, so the next point is this, created with a new nature. Now, now here is where we have a distinction between you have those who say that you can lose your salvation and those who say that you can't. And, and this is really where we begin. This is the observable part of it. I, let me just say that. And what I mean by that is if when, when we talk about what happens at salvation, we're talking about a transformation that has taken place in the part of of, of us as believers, all right? There's a transformation that takes place. It is a real transformation. So we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, and this is kind of the go-to verse when we talk about the transformation. And we turn to this verse as an encouragement to us, right? Meaning that, all right, I messed up my life totally in the past, and now I've come to Jesus, and he gives me hope. Why? Because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. So this, this, this is hope for us. It doesn't matter how much I've messed my life up. I can come to Jesus, and when I do, he makes me new. He, he reinvigorates me. He gives me new life. I am a new creation in Christ. I come alive in him. And so the believer then possesses a new nature. And we find in the... New Testament, the exhortations, put off the old man, put on the new man, take off the old coat, put on the new coat. You know, there's just all of these uh, uh, comparisons of put off the old, put away what's gone beyond, but behind you, and put on the new, put on Christ. Uh, there's, there's this new language. And so we have this choice that is before us. So this comes back to, you know, this um, struggle that we have. And, and here it is. I have the choice to put on Christ or not. And 
I like to put it this way, that uh, Christians are the true schizophrenics in this world. Because we have two natures that are kind of vying uh, against each other. All right, some of you didn't like that, uh, that analogy, but, but there it is. We have the old nature that keeps on pulling us towards sin, and we have this new nature in Christ that is directed by the Holy Spirit who is guiding us into His ways. But anyway, this is the fact. We were dead before, but now in Christ, we have been created a new creation. We have come alive. So we'll look at some verses there, and we're going to save that for next time. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, which is really where it... it um, comes out or is explained a little bit more. But here's what I want to leave us with. As new creations, what is going to be true of our new nature? Now forget the old man at this point. We know he's there and he's ugly and he just likes all the bad stuff, right? What about the new man? What about this new creation? Just focus on him. What is he like? What is he like? What does he like? All right, righteousness. How does he feel about unrighteousness? Yeah, doesn't like it. All right, what else? The new nature, the new man. What is he like? What is he like? What is he like? What does he like? All right, good. That's a good one. He likes what God likes. A what? A pure heart. He has a pure heart. Yes, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. The what? Stewardship. Stewardship. He wants to do, he wants to handle right what God has entrusted to him. Okay. Tyson, did you start? Hungry. Hungry. Huh? Hungry for the, yes, hungry for God, for the word. Right? So somebody who possesses this new nature, and this is where we'll kind of end it. Someone who possesses the new nature will keep on doing what? He will keep on going after these things. So, the question then is, does somebody have this new nature or not? That's really, for me, that's kind of the question to answer. Does somebody have the new nature or not? Because if they have the new nature, truly, they will pursue the things of God. Truly. And they will fight against the old nature, which is trying to take them away from God. If you have the new nature. Alright, so we'll talk more about this new nature Uh, The next time that we come together, uh, Lord willing.